conflict resolution and in conflict with me to Mark chapter 10. Cody, bring me my cup, please, brother. Thank you. Look at you being a servant. All right. Mark chapter 10 is the chapter we're going to be in. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black Bible in the pew in front of you, or you have the internet on your phone, hopefully not the Facebook on your phone. We are going to be starting in verse 32. How would you feel if I preached the same sermon to you twice? How would you feel if I preached the same sermon to you three times? Would you begin to suspect suspect me of laziness? What if I preached the same two sermons to you on three separate occasions within a very short time? like a month ago. Well, I'm going to preach this morning a sermon that might sound almost exactly like a few of the sermons that I have previously preached in this church in the weeks preceding this week. And it's not because I'm being lazy. The reason why I'm going to preach a sermon that sounds almost identical to other sermons is because here in the book of Mark, Jesus is teaching the same thing for the third time. As a matter of fact, in today's sermon, we're going to see two themes that Jesus is teaching on for the third time. In this church, we let God set the agenda for the preaching that comes from this pulpit by simply walking through the book of Mark. And God, in his infinite wisdom, has seen fit to have Jesus teach the same thing several times over in the Gospel of Mark. So it must be beneficial for us to hear these same truths for the third time in the Gospel of Mark. What this means is that I'm all out of clever illustrations. I have no more funny anecdotes. I don't have any new, fresh way to approach the text and to really bring this truth to life for you. So, I'm sorry. Nevertheless, this truth is given to us by God in repetitive fashion for our good. So, I want to encourage you this morning to pay attention and to consider why God may be having you hear the same things over and over and over again. Let's read the text together and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, 
we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Father, be with me this morning as I open up this text. We ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive all that you have for us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, this is the third time so far in the book of Mark that Jesus is telling the disciples that he is on his way to Jerusalem to die. If you'll remember, we hit a turning point in the book of Mark. Somewhere around chapter 9 where Jesus sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem. Now, on the second occasion that Jesus foretold his death to the disciples, in chapter 9, the disciples were too afraid to ask him about it. The first time that he foretold his death, Peter, kind of speaking for all the other disciples, approaches Jesus and rebukes him. He says, it's not going to be that way. In today's text, we read that as the crowd is following Jesus, including the disciples, there's a mixture of fear and there's some astonishment. Maybe the astonishment has to do with all the miraculous things Jesus has been saying and doing. Maybe the fear has to do with the fact that everyone recognizes that he's basically marching down towards the gallows and he's doing it willfully. We don't really know exactly why they're afraid or astonished. The text doesn't tell us. But it would be helpful for us to remember that everywhere Jesus goes in his ministry, people respond with these same kind of basic emotions. They're either very afraid of him or they're utterly astounded by him. As Jesus talks about what will happen to him in Jerusalem, he gives us more detail than he does in the previous two occasions. He, lists, he uses eight verbs in the future tense to talk about what will happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. Jesus will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. He will be condemned to death. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. I'm going to switch to my right hand because I'm... He will be mocked. He will be spit on. He will be flogged. He will be killed. And after three days, he will rise. Well, let's look at each one of these verbs one by one. First one is that he will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. As we saw in the previous sermon, the person who's going to betray Jesus is going to be Judas. This was all part of the plan. Jesus knew it. He saw it coming. Nevertheless, Judas betrays Jesus over into the hands of the religious rulers of the day. Next, he will be condemned to death. The Jewish authorities will put on a mock trial for Jesus. You know, they think it's a genuine trial, but really, they bring false witnesses against him, and they do a whole bunch of other things that are very sketchy. They basically find, use this imperfect justice system to bring an accusation and find guilt in the guiltless Son of God. We read about this trial in Mark 14 later, and it says, The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? 
But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. The Jews were under Roman occupation. They had no right to condemn a person to death under Roman law. So in order to have Jesus killed, they had to go before the Roman rulers of the day in order to accomplish that. Pilate. Herod. The next thing is he will be mocked. You saw the mocking had already begun when the Jews sentenced him to death from Mark 14 when I just read. They, they cried, well, if you're such a prophet, prophesy. The Gentiles will also mock Jesus. From Matthew 27, we read these words. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion, the entire battalion around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail the King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The mocking continues as Jesus hangs from the cross. And the elders and the scribes of Israel say this, He saved others. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. He will be spit on. We saw that. He's been spit on by the Jews and the Gentiles alike. He will be flogged. When we think of flogging, we tend to think of like, you know, a kid getting paddled in school, you know, a a kind of swift beating that's not pleasant, but it's not that terrible. Flogging in in biblical days, especially under Roman rule, was something quite the opposite. Listen to this historical description of a flogging that Jesus would have endured. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, across his back across his legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. But then as the blows continue, they cut deeper in the subcutaneous tissues, producing first the oozing of blood from capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally, spurting arterial bleeding from vessels and the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. He will be flogged. The next thing is that he will be killed. And here's a description of how Jesus would die. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wound. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action. Being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and give of movement. 
The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in his wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms and explodes in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, cramps begin to sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but not exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. He passes hours in this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber of the cross. Then another agony begins a deep, crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is almost over now. The loss of tissue fluids reaches a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. And the body of Jesus is now an extremist, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. His mission of atonement has been completed. He dies. And then finally, after three days, he rises again, victorious by the power of the Spirit of God over sin and death and hell, satisfying the requirements of God's justice. He's vindicated, shown to be that he is who he says he is and that he came to accomplish everything, that he did accomplish everything that he came to accomplish. There's something interesting going on here with these eight verbs that Jesus uses. The first seven of these verbs, Jesus is speaking about what will be done to him. He's the object of the sentence, not the subject. You know, Sally threw the ball. The ball is the object. Sally is the one who's doing things. Jesus is being acted upon by other people. Jesus will be spit upon. He will be flogged. He will be betrayed. But when you get to the eighth verb, Jesus is the one who is doing the action. Jesus is the subject of the sentence. He's speaking in third person, but if he's speaking in first person, now he's not saying, they're going to do this to me. He's saying, I will do this. I will be the one to act. They're going to betray me. They're going to deliver me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. But I will rise from the grave. Victorious. Triumphant. 
If Jesus were a mere man, the first seven verbs used here would be too much. Who of us could endure this, including the last verb? We would be killed. And that's it. That's the end for us. But Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God, and the proof of that is borne out in the fact that he rises from the dead, victorious over the grave. Do you know what selective hearing is? Uh, some of the parents should be shaking their head, yeah. It's like a special hearing aid that kind of filters out criticism, but hears compliments. Or it fills out things that, it filters out the things that you're supposed to do, but only hears the things that people are supposed to do for you. You know, for kids, it's, you know, hey, Johnny, you can go to the movies after you clean your room. And Johnny says, great, I get to go to the movies. Kids seem to be amazing at hearing everything. I mean, every last word, except for when you tell them to do something, like clean their room. Now all of a sudden, you know, they have a damaged eardrum. I just, they just can't hear anything. This is selective hearing. It seems like as Jesus is teaching about what is to come to him in Jerusalem, the disciples, at least two of the disciples, have selective hearing. Jesus has just gotten through telling them these very terrible things that are about to happen to him, and the disciples respond by saying, what about us? Look at verses 35 through 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. These two disciples want prominence. They want authority. They want glory. To sit at the right hand or the left hand in the ancient world was a very big deal. It meant that you were in charge of somebody. You were looked upon with favor. They want to be with Jesus in glory, but they don't understand that the, the path to glory is potholed with suffering. Jesus tells them this in verse 38, where he basically says, I mean, he literally says, you do not know what you're asking. James and John, probably the rest of the disciples too, it seems as if they're not even really interested in knowing. You know, they just want to make sure that the time comes when all that other ugly stuff is done and when you're finally resurrected and you're in authority and you have all the power that, like, we're getting in on the ground level. That we have authority with you. That we get to share in your glory. This reminds me of two sons sitting down with their father. The father sits down with the sons. He looks them in the eyes, takes a deep breath and says, I have cancer. I'm going to die in six months. I'm going to be on chemo, trying to fight for my life. It probably won't work. I'll have to be more sick because of the chemo than I would have been from just the cancer. I'll be vomiting incessantly. I'll have sores. I'll lose half my body weight, my hair. On top of that, I will be battling anxiety and fear. I'll have to endure isolation, and then I will probably die what is most certainly going to be an excruciatingly painful death. To which the sons reply, yeah, but who gets the company? Who gets the house? Who gets the cars? Now, this isn't a perfect illustration, but I think it shows 
the kind of carelessness that the disciples are displaying here, the, the lack of sympathy, the lack of empathy, the, the selfish and self-centered way that the disciples respond to Jesus who's talking about his suffering and coming death. I'm sure that Jesus isn't looking for sympathy. But as they listen to Jesus talk about these things that he's about to endure, they would not have been lost on James and John. When Jesus said, I will be flogged, they would have seen a flogging. They would have known and understood what a flogging was. Anybody who heard someone talk about flogging would have likely shuddered. If they truly understood what Jesus has been teaching them thus far, in response to all of this, they might not have thought about themselves, they would have thought about Christ. And rather than trying to be great by trying to make backdoor deals with Jesus, asking to be at his right hand and at his left, they might have just asked how they could have sat at his feet like a slave. Jesus told them not long ago that if they wanted to be great, they had to pick up their cross and follow him. That was how they would get to glory. But it seems as if the disciples are hoping that they can follow Jesus and just leave their crosses a couple miles back on the road, maybe hoping that he'll never notice. Well, rather than rebuking the disciples for any number of sinful things going on here, Jesus simply asked them a question. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, the cup and the baptism are two symbols from the Old Testament, both representing the wrath of God. Jesus is telling them, I will be victorious. I will rise again. But first, I'm going to have to suffer. And I'm going to have to suffer greatly. You want the glory that I have, but are you able to endure the suffering that I am going to endure? They respond to him in verse 39 with the simple, we are able. Is this hubris on their part? Are they being prideful? Are they overly confident in their ability to suffer? Every year, about a thousand men, roughly a thousand men, sign up to go be Navy SEALs. As they sign up, the commander in charge of their unit says, are you sure you're ready for this? Are you, are you sure you're ready to do everything that it takes to become a Navy SEAL? And these men, they want the honors, they want the glory, they want the authority, they want the position. And so they just say, yes, I'm able, I can do it. Even if they know about the cold mornings in the ocean, if they know about carrying the boats over their heads for hours at a time, if they know about men screaming in their face incessantly, if they know about the lack of sleep and just the utter physical exhaustion, even if they know it, if they haven't been through it, they can't understand it. So as these men stand before their commanders, they just say, yes, I can handle it. But when they get there, roughly three-fourths of them find out that they cannot handle it. And they ring the bell and they tap out. Most of them think that they can drink from the cup and be baptized with the baptism of suffering in order to obtain the seal glory. And Jesus here tells these brothers, he says, okay, you will drink of the cup. You will be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with. That is, you will endure great suffering. Now, I can imagine that James and John might walk away from this feeling a little excited. 
you know, maybe please, you know, like we went to Jesus and, you know, he said, you know, can you endure? And we said, yeah, we can endure. And he said, okay, you're going to be baptized and you're going to drink of the cup. But like, like the guy who wants to be a SEAL who hasn't actually been through the SEAL training, these disciples haven't actually suffered what they're going to have to suffer. They really don't understand in the moment what Jesus has just promised them. I wonder if later in their lives, for James as he's being martyred in Jerusalem, or John as he's being boiled in a pot of oil on the island of Patmos, I wonder if he'll look back on this conversation with Jesus and say, you know, how foolish of me. How foolish of me to just be so flippant and just say, yes, of, of course I can. Yes, I'll endure it. I'll drink the cup. I'll be baptized. Brothers and sisters, suffering is promised to us, to each and every one of us, as is glory. But the path to glory is a path of suffering. And I wonder how many of us have selective hearing when it comes to that aspect of the gospel. How many of us are latching on to the promise of heaven and glory and you know, all these amazing things that the gospel promises us. We're going to get to be with God forever in heaven and all sin and death and tears are going to be wiped away and everything's going to be amazing. But Jesus has always been clear to communicate to us that before that come, comes, there's going to be more death. There's going to be more tears. There's, there's going to be more suffering. There's going to be a great cost to obtain that glory. How many of us, especially as American Christians, are selectively listening to Jesus on this? When I tell you this morning and many other mornings that suffering is promised to you for the sake of Christ, I wonder if you kind of just intellectually assent to it, if you kind of just follow, file it away in your you know, theological Rolodex, like, okay, got it, yes, glory and suffering. Or if you really meditate on it, if you really consider it, if you really consider preparing your heart for it, or preparing your family for it, or preparing other members of this church for it, because it will come. Practically speaking, this principle that Jesus teaches, suffering to obtain glory, you see it in life. One of the great sins of young people is that they don't really understand this. They think that they can become rich working 20 hours a week. They think that they can become the best athletes in the world without having to put in the thousands of hours on the field or in the gym, suffering. In our families, we think that we can raise children without having them break our hearts. We think that we can be married without ever having our spouses sin against us, sometimes grievously, without us still being obligated to love them. In our discipleship with Jesus, we think that we can love this world and love Jesus at the same time. We think that we can follow him in this world and not have the world hate us if we just choose our words just, just so, just be so careful. We think that we can sit with Him in glory without first hanging with Him on the cross. I wonder if, if you think that you're the exception to the rule. Jesus has promised all of His followers suffering. Do you think that there's a pass for you? A get-out-of-jail-free card for you? Do you think that you're, you have the right skin color or the, the right amount of money or the the right friends, the right connections? Do you think that you're going to get to avoid this suffering? 
when, uh, when I was in Iraq, we had to be constantly on the lookout for IEDs. It's a big part of your training. Guys who go outside of the wire a lot more, they have to be looking out for IEDs. IEDs are improvised explosive devices. That's what the terrorists would use to try to blow up trucks or people or anything really that you can blow up. And if you travel on any road in Iraq, the odds of you running into an IED are extremely high. So they train you to look for them, you know. That Pepsi can on the road, does it have a wire coming out of it? If so, it might be an IED. That dead dog laying on the side of the road, does he look like he's too perfectly placed to have genuinely died there? Well, it might be an IED, and that's not a joke. You know, that mound in the ground, that rock that looks artificial, that could be an IED. In the war zone of Iraq, if you're driving down the road to your safe destination, you should know that it will likely be littered with improvised explosive devices. And we live in a fallen world, brothers and sisters. This earth is a cosmic war zone. Jesus has saved us and he's put us on a path to glory. But the path that we're on is littered with IEDs of suffering. But the good news for us in Jesus Christ is that as these bombs detonate around us, underneath us, in front of us, they're actually propelling us towards glory, the glory that's been promised us. The world does not have that hope. The world must endure suffering without understanding why, without seeing a purpose in it. And then they will die, and they will experience suffering like they've never known before. Right after Jesus tells the brothers about the suffering that they will endure and that he will endure, he goes on to tell them that he doesn't really have the authority to assign positions of prominence in the kingdom. He says, yeah, you know, I, I don't really have the, one to, I don't have the power to do that. These things have already been prepared these positions of authority. In this statement, we encounter more of the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God in the Gospel of Mark. I don't really have any like clever thing to tell you to help you work out the fact that Jesus is both God and man and that he seems to be omniscient because you know he knows the thoughts of people's hearts and he knows that he's going to be killed and he's going to rise again, but he doesn't know who's going to be put at the position of power and authority. Rather than trying to figure it out, why don't we just sit and marvel at the God that we serve? The mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the fullness of the revelation of God and the Trinity. As you can imagine, the other disciples were not happy when they found out about James and John trying to make this backdoor deal with Jesus about taking the power and position in the coming kingdom. Verse 41 says that they became indignant. If you remember a couple of sermons ago, Jesus used this very word, excuse me, Mark used this very word to speak of the way that Jesus felt towards the disciples because of some of their actions. So here we have the disciples feeling some kind of way about James and John when Jesus had just recently felt this exact same kind of way about them. How often are we quick to judge people and be angry with them and frustrated with them for things that we just recently conquered ourselves? But once again, Jesus quells the bickering and he uses it as a teaching opportunity. So he gathers the disciples together, and he teaches them about greatness. He says, okay, you guys want to be great? You want to argue about greatness? You want to argue about authority? Come around. Let's talk. 
But this time he approaches the problem that he's already dealt with twice from a slightly different angle. The first two times, Jesus basically pointed to a child and he said, hey, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you need to be like this. If you want to pursue greatness, you need to be least. You need to be like this. Be like this child. But today, Jesus doesn't do that. Rather than pointing to a child and saying, being like this, Jesus points to the world and says, do not be like this. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must first be a servant. Here Jesus contrasts the authority of the godly with the authority of the world. And he's clear to say the world uses authority and it lords it over its subjects. You know, it's just look at some of the examples from the book of Mark. Herod uses his authority to impress all the dinner guests and then to kill an innocent man. Pilate uses his authority later in the book of Mark to quell rebellions and to put Jesus, the Son of God, to death. The Jewish leaders use their authority to have the Son of God killed. In our own times, presidents and kings use their authority to advance their own interests and agendas. Some police officers use their authority to do good, but also to cover up their misconduct. Pastors oftentimes use their authority for their own private, disgusting gain, abusing women in the church, fleecing the flock, trying to take them for all the money that they can. The world, that is those who do not belong to God, uses its authority to grind those who serve underneath it, to make them subject to their rule. But Jesus tells us that the way that we, as God's people, use authority should stand in direct contrast to the way the world uses its authority. It's worth mentioning, brothers and sisters, that authority is not evil. Authority is a good gift given to us by God. But like all good gifts that God gives us, as sinners, we take it and we use it maliciously. We use it sinfully. Sex is a good gift given to us by God, but we take that and we pervert it in our idolatry. Money is a good gift given to us by God, but we take it and we use it to invest in treasures on this earth rather than investing in treasures in heaven. Authority is a sweet gift given by us given to us by God, both to punish evil and to do good to our neighbors. But how often have we Christians been guilty of using authority in all the wrong ways? King David was a man who possessed great authority, and at times he greatly abused it. As King David was meditating on his life and his rule, preparing to die, he uses this language to talk about authority. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, that is, when one uses his God-given authority well, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. 
like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. This is what godly authority is like. It dawns on men like the sweet blessings of nature. But that's not the way that the world uses its authority. It, it crushes, it stifles, it, it kills, it burdens. That's not to say that no one will ever feel that way when they're under godly authority. Someone might feel as they are submitting to godly authority that they're being crushed or stifled. Or, but on the whole, godly authority gives life. Jesus says that the way the world uses authority will not be the same for us in verse 33. I was asking myself, why? Why won't it be the same for us? I think one of the easy answers to that is because we don't have the ability to lord authority over anyone because we as Christians should understand that there's only one Lord. And we are not Him. It should feel unnatural for us to lord authority over people because we should feel like servants not lords. The world uses coercion. We use persuasion. The world blackmails and uses power moves. We love and we offer ourselves to be taken advantage of. The world pursues authority for its own glory, but we simply follow Christ, submit to His authority, seek His glory, and we let the chips fall where they may. Brothers and sisters, authority is part of our lives. It's inescapable. Just because someone has abused authority doesn't mean you can get rid of it. Even the anarchists who wish that all government authority would disappear, eventually they have to start exercising authority amongst themselves as they try to organize. You know, it's like people saying there's no such thing as absolute truth. They say that quite absolutely. As we try to abandon authority, we see that it's impossible. It's built into the fabric of, the, of our lives, our government, our family units, even the church. The modern Western mind, particularly the young modern Western mind, is suspicious of authority. And because of that, we very easily reject it, even in the church. We see many who call themselves Christians abandoning the authority structures that God has put in place for his bride. Having said that, I've been hurt by the church. I understand. I know what it's like to be hurt by people who are in authority to be abused by those who are supposed to use their authority to do you good rather than harm you. But Jesus knew what he was doing when he gave authority to the church. He knew that men were going to abuse it, but he gave it to us anyways. Some of the people who exercise the most authority in the life of the church are people like me, pastors. Jesus, speaking through the apostle Peter, says this to pastors. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, using authority, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Jesus knew what he was doing. And he knew that we as sinful men would be tempted to abuse our authority. So he tells us in his word, brothers, be on guard to not abuse your authority. If you've been hurt by the church, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't change that. I can't go back and fix it. And the truth is, is that if you join this church, there may be times where you will see authority used inappropriately. But my hope and prayer for this church is that the elders of this church are committed to repenting of that sin if and when it comes up. 
that we're committed to building this church up in the kind of authority that is commanded by Jesus. The authority that leads by example. The authority that leads in service like a slave. That doesn't pursue power. That isn't money hungry. As Jesus says in verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a slave of all? Nobody wants to think of themselves as a servant. And nobody wants to be treated like a servant. As members of this church, are you, are you here to serve? Are you willing to come early and help out with baptism stuff? Are you willing to volunteer for children's ministry so it's not the same ten people rotating in and out all the time? Are you willing to give your time and talent and treasure to this church to see it grow up into the fullness of Jesus Christ? You know, so many people leave the church because they feel like they're not being served. But Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve. Now, the church should certainly take care of its members, and the shepherds should certainly feed the flock. But in America, we need to be especially careful of having a consumeristic mentality about church. It's so easy to walk into a church and to say, see that, you know, the color of the carpet isn't what we like, or, you know, the coffee isn't the flavor that I prefer, or the, the music selection is not what I was hoping for, or the pastor is slightly long-winded, and then to just abandon because we're not being served in exactly the right way that we think we should be served. You should know that I tell the members of this church as they join the church that we are not here to cater to your, to your whims, to your preferences. We are here to worship God, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him, to edify one another, and to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. If you don't like that one song we sang, I'm sorry, Maybe we'll do better in the future. But what did you think about the gospel? What do you think about people repenting of their sin? What do you think of people, what do you think about this young brother who's growing in Christ like a weed? You know, Jesus served in so many ways, but the main way that he served us was by giving his life as a ransom. We read that at the very end of our verses today in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we think about ransom, we think about hostages, right? Big Hollywood productions, you know, I've got the, I've got the kid, give me the money, that sort of thing. That's not really what ransom would have meant to a person who would have been reading it in, in biblical times. Ransom has more to do with a bondservant paying off all of his debt so that he might be free. Or a prisoner of war paying off a certain ruler so that he could gain his freedom. The Bible says that we as humans owe a sin debt to God. It says that we are war criminals of sin. And it says that because God is holy and righteous and good, from the very first moment we sinned against him, our debt was infinite. And the cost of our freedom is incalculable. There is no way for us to obtain it on our own. God cannot be paid off with money, and all of our good works only serve to compound our sin problem. But Jesus came, and he took our place. He ransomed us. The satisfaction 
for our sin was a righteous human life. And your life could never be that life. So Jesus gave you his own. He lived the perfect life that you could have never lived. And then he laid it down on your behalf. Consider the fact that we owed a debt to God, brothers and sisters, not to Satan. Satan is not in charge of your destiny. He's not in charge of your soul. God is the one that you have offended. And in hell, Satan will not be the one whose wrath you will have to endure. It will be God's. We owed a debt to God that we could never pay, so God paid it himself. As one theologian has said, we are saved from God, by God, to God, and for the glory of God. That's the way that Jesus used his authority. He set it aside and became a servant. And he used all of his power and all of his might to come and to serve you by dying for you on the cross. If that's true of Jesus, and he uses himself as an example. He says, don't be like the world. Look at me, consider me. Even as the son of man, I came here not to be served, but to serve. I didn't come here to have you die for me. I came here to die for you. So in light of the reality of the way that Jesus has served us, how are you using your authority to serve others? What does authority look like in your life? Does it look like a limp body hanging from a cross? I pray that wherever you have authority in this world, you're using it to preach the gospel. Fathers, mothers, my hope is that you are using your authority to not crush or mold your children by mere obedience into your own image. I pray that you're using your authority to build them up into Jesus Christ. For those of you who have employees under you at your job, I pray that you're using your authority to serve them, not to make them serve you. To my fellow elders and future elders, brothers, I hope that you're using your authority wherever you may have it to build this church up to show the world that your love for this church leads you to give your life up, not to make others give up theirs. Friends, this call to service, this call to serve by laying our lives down through suffering, this is not a principle for you to be agreed with. This is not a principle that Jesus wants you to nod your head yes and down to, up and down to, yes and no to. This is a call to obedience. So will you be obedient? Will you turn from your sin and trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? You know, the incredible thing about James and John and their desire to sit next to Jesus on his throne is that they're actually desiring too little. The sweet promise of the gospel is not that we'll get to sit next to Jesus, it's that we'll be in Jesus. We will be one with him. That's the promise of the gospel, union with Jesus Christ. This side of heaven, there's no stronger image for the union of Jesus Christ that we have as believers than baptism. This morning, our brother Tate is going to be baptized. And this baptism is a symbol that Tate has died to himself and his own desires, and that he's been buried with Christ, and that he has been risen to new, newness of life, not on his own, not next to Christ to the right, not next to Christ to the left, but in Christ. And he should live his life accordingly. 
Tate has not been raised to rule the world, but to serve it and to die a thousand deaths to himself until he dies his final death where he will go on to live forever. Let's pray and then I'll have my brother Tate join me up here to share his testimony. Father, we pray that you would help us to be distinct from the world in every aspect of our lives, including any area where you have given us influence and power. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.